Hello everyone. There is one week left to apply for the Out of Hours side project launchpad. If you've got an idea that you've been thinking about for a while that you keep putting off and not starting, this is the thing to do. It's just three weeks long. It starts on November the 11th and we've had some incredible applications so far. We cannot wait to get started. Just one more week left to apply. So if you are thinking about starting a project, but you're not quite sure where to start or you think it might be useful to have some people around you, just head to outofhours.org and fill in the form there. So many people are so acutely aware of their power or their talent. And that's the reason that they don't actually pursue anything because they're afraid of success. They're afraid if I get this thing I want, I might not be able to handle it. It's going to be too much work or too many eyes looking at me and that's going to feel too vulnerable. Welcome to the Out of Hours podcast, the podcast for people who are creating things they think should exist in the world. I'm Georgia Ritter, founder of outofhours.org, a community for people with side projects. Over the last year, I've been spending my time exploring how to help more people progress the ideas that they're interested in. I believe that everyone has a great idea and working on things we care about can help us be more creative, more resilient and more confident. But there are barriers that stop us from starting, sometimes time, money or network, but also self-belief, not knowing where to start and wondering what other people might think. On this show, I'll explore the stories of people who have followed their curiosity, been brave and started a side project, only to turn it into something much bigger than they ever thought possible. I'll explore the stories of nonprofits, businesses, creative projects and social movements to understand the practical first steps they took, the doors these small ideas can open and the magic that happens when you start taking your own ideas seriously. Today on the podcast, we have Lisa Congdon. Lisa is an artist, a published author and an illustrator. She's based in Oregon, but known across the world for her colorful drawings and hand lettering. Her work is recognized for its vibrant palettes, geometric and playful patterns, and uplifting messages. Her work has also attracted over 400,000 Instagram followers, and she's done commercial work for clients like Comme des Garçons, Facebook, MoMA, and Harvard University. She's published eight books, including Art Inc., The Essential Guide to Building Your Career as an Artist, and the book Finding Your Artistic Voice. Lisa started her art career as a side project in her late 30s, when she was working for a nonprofit. She's a constant advocate for showing up and getting started, but she also understands how vulnerable early creative attempts can be. We talked about things like growing your audience, where imposter syndrome comes from, why we can be more afraid of success than failure, when to know if something is a bad idea, and why it can be important to keep your personal life separate from your work. I think it's such an interesting conversation and so useful for people starting out on a side project. So it's a bit longer than usual, but I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for making the time because I know it's been a tough time and there's just a lot going on in the world personally. So I really appreciate it. I want to start by asking you something which I know you've said a hundred times, but I just think it's such an important starting point, okay. um, which is how you got started because you're not from a traditional fine art background. There's so many layers to the story. I mean, I did grow up in a home where creativity was encouraged. My mom is a super creative person, although similar to me, when she was a young woman, she didn't identify as an artist at all, even though she totally is, right? I think that's something that we think is reserved. That title is reserved for other people and not for us. The first shift that happened for me was I moved to San Francisco after college. And, you know, I had grown up in suburbia. And so my exposure outside of my mom to art or design or craft was very limited. And, you know, moving to a big city, my mind was sort of blown. And I started kind of taking in all of the stimulus that was around me. And within a couple of years, I got into a relationship with a woman who was a graphic designer and artist. And she's actually um, my ex-partner who just passed away you know, for your audience, like we were supposed to talk a couple of weeks ago, and I had to cancel because, because I was in such grief about that. She was such a wonderful influence in my life, because even though I didn't identify as an artist myself at the time, she sort of introduced me to this whole other world that really lit me up. Just being surrounded by visual imagery, even though I wasn't yet creating it myself, was just really inspiring to me. 
And then in my 20s, I definitely dabbled in making things here and there. And I was really into decorating our house and all of that. But that was about the extent of it. And then in my early 30s, which is in the early 2000s, that partner and I broke up and I went off to live by myself for the first time in almost a decade. And I found myself kind of sad and trying to figure out what to do with myself because I was alone for the first time. And I thought, I'm going to take some art classes. So I did. I was like 31 or 32 at the time, and I'm 52 now. So this was about 20 years ago. And again, I never imagined that I would become a professional artist. This was purely like what we would now call an act of self-care. You know, I was like, I'm going to I'm feeling really down in the dumps. Maybe doing something creative will help me, you know, and I just went took a couple of different art classes at some community centers and and I really enjoyed it. And so I started spending time on the weekends and at night after my job. I had a full-time job working at an education nonprofit. I started spending evenings and weekends making things. I didn't know what I was doing. In about 2004, I started a blog. Um, which is sort of weird to think about because now like not very many people blog anymore. But yeah, and then I just started writing about the stuff I was making and about my creative process. And I joined the photo sharing site Flickr, which I like to refer to as like the original Instagram. It's so clunky to us now, but you know, there was this place where you could post photos and people could comment and you could follow people. And, and it was really wonderful because I started meeting people there who were making things like I was. And maybe some of them were professional artists already. And some of them were aspiring like me. And I started to see or kind of get a picture of what it could look like to, to make a living as an artist, even though I had no training. I had a full-time job. Before we started recording, you and I were talking about like this whole idea that people get an idea of what they want to do, but they talk themselves out of it. And for whatever reason, I didn't talk myself out of this. I talked myself into it. I'm really keen to go back to that really early bit where you're, you're at the art classes. Did you have like an intention to grow it into something else? You know, the difference between like a flow state and a kind of that other thing, I can't remember what it's called, but the thing before where it's a quite challenging. Yeah. Did you see it as kind of, it's a hobby, I'm switching off, I'm in a flow state? Or were you kind of like, I want this to be a big part of me? I don't think it became intentional when I was sitting in the art class. I think when I was still in the art class, I was still struggling to a certain degree, to the degree that I never could have imagined myself even necessarily being much better at it than I was. But at the same time, and in my book, um, Find Your Artistic Voice, I talk about the spark, which is like for everyone, it sort of happens at a different time. And I think that the spark was lit in me before I took the class, which was good because even though I was struggling with being in this sort of beginner gap, as we call it, I also loved it. I was having enough fun that I wanted to carry on. And I'm a very goal-oriented person. So give me a challenge, whether it's a physical challenge at the gym. I'm like, okay, I want to win at this, right? I mean, it's not like I haven't encountered things in the past where I'm like, no, I don't ever want to do this again. But if I like it enough and it has a certain amount of challenge attached to it, I want to pursue it so I can get better at it. So there was there was definitely part of me who was who could never have imagined it as a career, but who was definitely like, you know what? I like this and it's hard, but I want to get better at it. And I definitely think that happened in the art class. There was something that made me want to go home and do more of it. I got hooked a little bit. And then the more I did it, the more hooked I got. And then I started to see pictures of what my life could look like if I, you know, took it on full time. But that was all a process that that didn't happen in one instantaneous moment. So you go from doing art classes and you're creating some stuff and it's becoming this kind of challenge. It's almost like a self-improvement thing, I guess. Post breakups, a classic thing when you're, <laughs> and you're going to be so jealous because you're going to see all the yep. stuff I'm creating, right? <laughs> so there's a bit of that going on. But then when you start posting on Flickr, like that's when it becomes external, right? Like you're getting, you're putting your work out there. Can you remember that first feeling of inviting external eyes on the work that you're creating. I imagine it's quite a vulnerable moment. 
yes, vulnerable is exactly the right word. I've reflected a lot on that time in my life. And actually, as vulnerable as it might seem, it didn't become super vulnerable until I was aware that there were more eyes. So right now I have like 402,000 Instagram followers. At the time, I probably had five people, including my mom and my sister, looking at my Flickr page. So relatively speaking, my audience was very small and very safe. And so while it was vulnerable, what actually ended up happening for me is that it became sort of vulnerable in the uncomfortable way much later. So on Flickr and on my blog, um, I started to gain an audience. And I, I even took down one entire blog that I had for several years because I had this horrible, vulnerable moment that I didn't want it to be on the internet anymore. So for years, I, you know, I had this sort of insecurity about the fact that I was self-taught and that I didn't know what I was doing. And that actually became more intense, the more accolades I was getting, for lack of a better word. The more I noticed people were paying attention and the more comments I got, the more insecure I felt. Where in the very beginning, I didn't feel any particular sense of extreme vulnerability. And so that actually grew to the point where in my industry, and probably you've talked about this before too, I had like this big case of imposter syndrome, right? Where I was like, who am I to do this? What am I doing? I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just lucky. I don't actually have any talent, you know? And, um, and so there was a lot of that, which I, I eventually got, got over. How did you, how did you navigate that? Cause I think that's such a familiar feeling for people. Oh yeah. Especially women, right? Because we're taught to not stand in our power and we're taught to, to chalk things up to luck and not to skill or talent or, or vision. <laughs> I was working with a business coach um, at the time who was, who had a sort of spiritual perspective and he really helped me sort of work through. And this was, oh gosh, this was just five years ago. So I would say up until about five years ago, which was about 15 years into my art making journey mm -hmm. and about seven years into my professional career, eight years into my professional career, I was still experiencing huge feelings of, of being an imposter. And this was like mm -hmm. when I was considered a very well-known successful artist by that point. And I was still struggling. So I wasn't in therapy at the time, but I was talking to this coach and he was having me really explore why I was feeling this way. And the more I broke it down, the more I began to understand it. And I think the more we understand sort of what's at the root of our insecurities, the more we can kind of let them go. Um, or, you know, honor them as part of like our inner child who needs some love and then, you know, we can move on. And I, and I thought, I think that was part of it. You know, I was this person who grew up believing that I was never going to be successful. I always sort of wanted to shine in the world, but was kind of told you're too much. Don't, don't make a big deal out of anything and stay humble. And so I was getting a lot of attention from my work. And so while I loved that, I also, you know, was like conflicted with my inner sense of who I should be, um, which was to stay small, right? And not, not feel good about what my accomplishments. And so I started to really challenge this inner voice that was telling me that it wasn't okay for me to be successful and that I didn't deserve it and that I was a fraud. And meanwhile, more and more amazing stuff started to happen in my career. And so I started to really shift my attitude to this is real. This is happening. I deserve it. People think I'm talented. I need to just accept that I'm experiencing success. And maybe not everybody thinks I'm talented. Maybe not everybody's going to like my work, but enough people do that I can make it a living at this and I enjoy what I do and I need to own that. And so another thing that was really getting in the way was my age. So you know, I didn't start drawing or painting until I was in my early 30s. By the time I started my professional career, I was 39. And, you know, a lot of my contemporaries, people who had sort of started their career at a similar time were in their early 20s. And I saw my age as an impediment or something to be ashamed of. And after a while, I realized 
I started to talk about, you know, the fact that this was um, a point of insecurity for me. And I heard from all these women that that's what inspired them, right? That I like did this thing in the middle of my life and left this whole career behind and went for it. And, you know, I was living my dream and that that gave them something to be hopeful for, not necessarily for themselves to do exactly what I was doing, but to do something, right? We need role models. And I thought, oh, this is actually a strength. People all the time will say, um, you know, I'm 46 and I really want to quit my job to do this other thing, but is it too late? And how can I compete with all the young people? And I like to say to people, what I learned was you have more creativity, you have more wisdom, more perspective, more of all the things that are going to help you run a successful business and be creative, own that and use it versus thinking of it as an impediment. When I made that mind shift myself, you know, about five or six years ago was when things started to really change for me. Did that happen overnight? No, it was a lot of work, but I would say within the last couple of years, I really arrived in this place where I don't experience that imposter syndrome anymore. It, I mean, every now and again, it rears its ugly head, like something really amazing will happen. And I'll say, wait, what me, you know, or I'll give a commencement address at a college and I'll say, wait, I didn't even go to art school. What am I doing on this stage? You know, but those are all sort of humbling, wonderful periods of <laughs> imposter syndrome. I think for the most part, I just have kind of like owned my experiences valid and true and actually part of what's made my career amazing and not something to be ashamed of. So I really encourage people to, to try to look at their life experience, however unconventional it might be as the thing that's actually going to give them power and strength in whatever it is they want to do. Do you think imposter syndrome is, it's always talked about as kind of, I'm going to be found out or I'm not, which, which is slightly a different narrative to this is too big for me. It's almost like a fear of success. Did you find that sort of the more successful you got, the more fearful you got partly because of the success or was it just because you thought people, people have got it wrong and I'm going to be sort of sussed out? I think it was a little bit of both, right? So many people are so acutely aware of their power or their talent and they, and that's the reason that they don't actually pursue anything because they're afraid of success. They're afraid, well, if I get this thing I want, I might not be able to handle it. It's going to be too much work or too many eyes looking at me and that's going to feel too vulnerable. That's the part mm -hmm. that's the other side of the coin, yeah. right? Or, or that, you know, maybe I'll be found out for being a fraud, like whatever it is, it's like this fear that this thing that I dream about is actually going to feel really hard when it happens or, you know, it'll be complicated. And let's be clear, it is complicated. Success is is not easy. You know, I used to be one of those people who would like write down all of my dreams of what I wanted to do in my career and I would mind map them. And I, I, I think people should do that. It's, it's in a really powerful exercise, but I have achieved literally not all, but almost all of the things that I used to write down five or 10 years ago. And in my head at the time, I always thought, well, once I get there, if I ever get there, I will have arrived, right? I will feel calm. All of these things will, you know, flow easily to me. And that's not actually true. Like success or however you perceive it often just creates more problems to, to be solved or more stress. And I think for me, the idea has been to sort of accept where I am at every kind of juncture. And even though it feels hard to sort of relax and enjoy and appreciate it and embrace the hard parts um, to the extent that I can and just understand that I'm not working toward perfection. I'm just working toward continuing to do the stuff that I love to do every day and keep the focus on what I love to do and not that I'm arriving somewhere, you know. It kind of what you're saying reminds me of, you know, that uh, Jim Carrey quote that's like, I can't, it's something like, um, I wish everyone could become rich and famous. So they realize that that's not what's going to make them happy. You think that these things are going to complete you or make you happier or, or then you'll feel successful, then you'll feel um, deserving, or then you'll feel all these things. But the reality is, I think, I imagine that you, you now have new goals. Oh, absolutely. Um, and a lot of them are like, about not working all of the time. <laughs> Um, my career goals have sort of become life goals, right? Because when you become successful at anything or you become known or 
you have this sort of like this thing that the world wants more of. I mean, that's what many of us who are entrepreneurs dream of, right? But but then there's a certain pressure attached to it and it becomes your whole life in a way. And so then, then it becomes like, how can I do and sustain this thing that I love and that the world wants, but also take care of myself and and relax? Because especially for creatives, we need, in order to continue to be creative, we need to have the time and space to do that and to like relax and, you know, creativity requires downtime. It requires sleep and relaxation and daydreaming and being outside in nature and like all of those things. And if you're working constantly, you can't do those things. What was the shift for you? If you go back to that kind of early phase where you're doing a lot of stuff for fun, just for self-improvement and learning new skills, and then you start to create this Flickr and this blog, and then you start an Etsy store, right? This 2007, when you started to kind of monetize the stuff that you were making, how did you feel asking for money for something that you'd just recently starting to create? Did that feel vulnerable? That was probably more vulnerable than posting pictures on Flickr. Yeah. It is this very insecure feeling. And let me tell you, there's this was before Instagram. And so I remember I joined Twitter and I would post things on my blog and then link to them on Twitter, or I would post something on Etsy and link to it on Twitter. And I had a relatively big Twitter following at the time, and I've since abandoned Twitter. So at the time, it was like my vehicle for driving traffic to my shop and to my blog. And I just remember like feeling like, like this is such a kind of vulgar term, but like a, like a pimp, like somebody who I, I was like, Pimping my own work, right? Like, go look at this thing that I made today. And it felt so icky. And then I realized at some point, oh, social media and the internet, people self-select what they want to look at. Nobody's forcing anyone to follow me on Twitter. So the people who want to hear from me because they want to know what I'm selling will stay around. And the people who don't want to know about what I'm selling or making will leave. I'm not forcing anybody to listen. And I still think people don't really understand that, but that was such a pivotal moment for me to understand that like it was, there was this amount of, there's certain amount of self-selection. It allowed me to continue to sort of actively promote my work because I thought to myself, the people who want to consume this or want to hear from me are going to stick around and the other people are going to leave. And I can't worry about who's leaving. I'm not going to look at my stats. I'm just going to pay attention to who wants to be there. And I also realized that I needed to balance imagery and posts and content that was not sales driven with the stuff that was sales driven so that people wouldn't see me as a sales machine. What keeps people around is for that stuff is the other stuff, right? That's not as salesy. And so it's really important to me to have that kind of balance. And I think that's what what's allowed me to continue to sell a lot of things and drive traffic to my shop. But also people see me as a human being also. In the beginning, I didn't necessarily have that figured out yet. And it took me a while. But maybe that vulnerability that I felt in saying, hey, look at what I made today, go buy it, caused me to really analyze, like, how can I continue to do this in a way that feels good? How can I market my work in a way that feels good? I think it's such good advice, because I think people, you're like your own hype man. And I guess that's why artists sometimes have agents, because it sort of takes out that difficulty of both being the creator and the seller. I imagine, though, that that sort of pimping that you did at the beginning was quite useful. Or do you think, you didn't need to do it and you just took you a while to get to that realization. Oh no, I definitely needed to do it and I'm glad I did it. And I actually, I think another thing that really causes a lot of artists to not pimp their work is this idea that their work isn't perfect yet, right? And so not only am I trying to sell something which feels yucky, part of why it felt yucky or weird was that I knew I wasn't a very good artist yet in 2007. I knew I had a long way to go. And yet I was choosing to put my work out there anyway. And per our previous conversation, 
before we started recording, you know, you and I were talking about this idea of like people not feeling ready and not, you know, starting things. And I always tell people like, start before you're ready, begin anyhow. Things are never going to feel perfect. Your work is never going to be perfect. And I somehow, maybe it was because I was older and I had this older meaning. I was like in my late thirties, early forties, when I was starting out, I had this perspective already. I understood that I wasn't going to get anywhere if I didn't put my work out there, even though I knew I wasn't as good an artist as I would eventually be. I still couldn't believe it when people bought stuff. Cause I was like, this, this is kind of crappy, but okay. <laughs> you know, even now I look back at my work from then and every now and again, I'll see a piece that I made back then. And I'll say, this is really quite good. And, but most of it, I'm like, that, that really was pretty bad. I'm embarrassed that anyone has that hanging in their house. Cause sometimes people will say, Oh, I bought stuff from you back in 2008 and it hangs over my fireplace. And I just sort of put my <laughs> hand over my face, like, Oh, please take it down and burn it. You know? Hearing you say that kind of explains the imposter syndrome, because if you think of it as a continuum, you know, you know, at the beginning, you're yep. putting it out there and it's not ready, but yet people are buying it. And and so there's a funny thing there where maybe you feel like you're tricking someone, even as you say, they're choosing to buy it, yeah. like you're not tricking them. But I imagine like right at the beginning, you're like, what the, all right, you know, I'll, I'll post it to you, yeah. but um, okay. But then I imagine yeah. because you're the same person as you were right at the beginning when you were having those feelings, even though your art improved, yeah. that might explain it. Yeah, exactly. There's this thing called, and I talk about it in my book, um, Find Your Artistic Voice, there, there's this thing that we call the beginner gap, right? Um, and Ira Glass, who hosts this radio program in the United States called This American Life, he he has this really funny um, clip on it, which I quote in my in the book. But it's like, you know, when we start something, you know, we get into whatever it is we want to get into, whether it's painting or drawing or you know, quilting or knitting, because we have a because we have taste, right? And we want we aspire to to make the thing that looks like the thing that we buy in the store or that we see in the gallery. But, you know, beginners don't have skills. That's that's why we're beginners, right? Developing skills takes time and effort and work. And so often what happens is people say, okay, I want to do this thing. So they start doing it, but there's this gap between where they are and where they want to be, their skill level and their taste level, right? And so what do most people do? They quit because it's so uncomfortable. It makes us feel so terrible. And people who eventually build skill um, especially when you're starting something as an adult, kids have a little bit less of that comparison syndrome or lots of children are forced to get good at things by their parents. But when you start something as an adult, it's your choice, right? And so there is this propensity to feel like an imposter or feel like, who am I to do this? Or this really sucks. I'm never going to get there. So why even bother? Well, I like to refer to it as the shark tank. My friend Andy Miller talks about it as a maze. You actually have to go into the shark tank. You have to go into the maze, into that really uncomfortable period where your work sucks, basically, um, in order to get to the place where it doesn't suck. And you can't jump over it. You can't skip it. That's part of, I think, what I was going through. And what you're alluding to is that I knew that in order to get to the other side, I had to go into the maze or the shark tank, but I also wanted to start making a living. And so, and I wanted to experiment and see what people liked and what people were interested in buying. And so I had enough courage to say, I know this isn't perfect. I know my work in five years is going to be better, but I'm going to sell this now anyway. And if anybody wants it, that's great. And, and I'm so glad I did that. And I think that's what kind of to answer your original question, I, I'm, I'm glad I did that. I'm glad I pimped my work. I'm glad I put it out there, even though I wasn't ready, because I think if I hadn't, I wouldn't be where I am now. I, I started where I was with what I had, and I continued to build it over time, even though looking back at my old work is mortifying. So <laughs> I think most artists would tell you that. What I think is interesting about that, let's say yeah. you start to build a bit of an audience. What I think is interesting is people don't know when they're not getting feedback because they haven't built up the audience or because they haven't worked on it long enough or because it's just bad work. I think people fear that. They think, oh, they rush to that conclusion and they say, oh, you know, I'm not getting the feedback that I expected. It must be really terrible. How do you think people can kind of assess that and, and actually decide whether it's good or bad? Or do you just think practice makes everything better and you should just keep going? 
Do you think there is a way of telling whether something's a bad idea or just it hasn't been given enough time? I do mostly think it's about practice. I think if you are attached to an, a creative idea and you want people to enjoy it or consume it or purchase it, not 85% of the time, this is just my feeling, mm-hmm. enough practice and work and marketing and refining and elaborating is going to get it to a place where people will like it and respond to it, or you'll find the people who do. But I do think there's a good 15% of the time where something's just a bad idea. Honestly, if you're not trying to sell something, I encourage people to just make what they want to make and post it and not worry about people's reactions. That's certainly easier said than done. I know sometimes when I make something that isn't going to get a huge response on Instagram. You know, if I ever post something that gets under 2000 likes, I'm like, people aren't interested in this or they're bored by it. Because sometimes I get stuff that has 32,000 likes. And I've learned to just take a deep breath and say, this is part of my creative journey. This is part of my experience. This is something that I made that I want to put out there. I don't think it's going to, the algorithm's going to like it or that people are going to be that excited, but it's still part of my path. And I've really learned to just be okay with that. And I really think that it's important to do that because as creative people, if we make and share only what we think people are going to like the most, we are denying people of our full selves, right? Like who we are as full human beings. And sometimes the stuff that I've thought would get the least love has sometimes gotten the most. Mm -hmm. So you just never know. And you never know, you might make something that really speaks to one or two people in a really profound way, even though the majority of your audience isn't that interested Mm -hmm. in it. I might post an an image that a handful of people are like, this is my favorite thing you've ever made, even though it's one of those things that gets under 2000 likes, right? (laughs) So I try to hang on to that. Like I'm touching some people, not all people. Uh, I enjoyed making this thing. I think it's cool. So I'm going to, I'm going to put it out into the world. I think it's interesting that that tension again, between pleasing others, I suppose, is the Instagram likes, right? You know, in your book, Find Your Artistic Voice, you talk a lot about personal experience being at the core. And everyone that you interview, I think, actually echoes that. And I think that's such a beautiful thing because it's accessible to everyone. You know, everyone has had experience and everyone discounts it, you know, and they think, oh, I'm not an artist or I don't have anything to say. But actually, everyone has something to say. And it must be difficult for you as being so popular on Instagram to balance that authentic voice. This is what I want to create and having that instant feedback of, oh, okay, this is how liked it is. You know, it's literally a measurement of how liked something is. How do you balance that kind of urge to create liked stuff and to do stuff that feels really authentic to you? I have to always balance that. I think it's a hard, it's a hard thing for me sometimes. And I don't, I've been doing this for so long and I struggled for so many years with validation from Instagram And actually, that's part of how I moved out of this sort of imposter syndrome space, which was directly connected to the validation I was getting on Instagram. Like if I had posted something that didn't get a huge response, I would feel really insecure, like something was wrong or it was bad. And I had to do so much sort of personal work to move past that. And that's a whole other podcast episode. But, but, you know, I think that was so helpful for me because now I don't really care. I mean, I care, of course, but like, I don't really care because I understand that just because I share something that doesn't get as much validation as something I posted the day before doesn't mean that I said anything wrong or that it doesn't resonate with some people or that it's a bad piece of art. Mm. You know what I mean? Like I can't often predict It's really interesting. And another important thing for me has been balancing my online life with my, with my offline life. So I had this whole life outside of being a professional artist and influencer that is very private in many ways. People know I'm a road cyclist and I cycle that I ride on a women's cycling team because I post pictures from my bike rides and people know I'm married to a woman and people know I have two dogs, but Most of my friends are not artists. My entire 
close group of friends only has one other professional working artist in it. I am mostly connected to people through just regular friendship. I do have a lot of artist friends, but like my core group of friends, my partner aren't in my world. And that's so wonderful because I have this place where I can turn all of that off and we talk about other things and we do other things and we're interested in other things. And, and that's so comforting to me. Like a, a lot of times on the weekends, I don't go on Instagram and that's because I'm just living this other life. I love that. And that's another thing I figured out in the last five years. Like I need to have a separation. I need to have privacy. I need to have other interests. I need to go be Lisa in other contexts. And that helps me realize, not put so much weight on Instagram and on my art and on my career, because I realize that other things in life are important. Especially, I think, when you're making work that's so personal to you, I think. So your work is so kind of personal and so authentic and it's so based on your own experience and I think it's so helpful for people because of that but I imagine that does make it harder because it that points it might feel like it defines you yes totally and I'm so grateful and I I feel so lucky that I, I get to be a person who interacts with people around my work and around my writing on a regular basis it's just a gift and my followers 99% of them are so lovely and kind and ask all the right questions and share all their own stories and all of that. It's great. I love it. Um, But yes, there is this part of me that needs to turn that off and have this whole, because there are days when I feel a huge vulnerability hangover. You know, I don't, I don't have much imposter syndrome anymore, but I definitely feel vulnerable when I tell my story and people are responding to my words and sometimes disagreeing with me, you know, it's hard. And so I, you know, I have to have this safe place that I go outside of that. And I feel very lucky that I have that and that I'm in a relationship. I have somebody to share other things with. One of those people gets lost in my own thoughts a lot, you know, and if I was spending a lot of time alone, it would be challenging. It's interesting we've gone on to this because I've literally got one piece of your work on this little piece of paper. And it is literally what we're talking about right now. Um, And it says, you cannot and will not please everyone. That is a fact of life. By taking care of your own needs, you will sometimes disappoint or even anger other people. How other people react to your choices is not your responsibility. And the greatest responsibility you have is to your own well-being and happiness. I guess what I was going to ask you about that is it feels very grounding to have these kind of statements that are irrefutable whatever's happening in the comments section, you know, whatever's happening, how many people are buying things or not buying things. Like here are some quite simple, irrefutable truths. And I wonder whether that was why you wrote them or whether you wrote them for, for someone else. No, they're, it, actually the title of that piece is Notes to Self. Oh, <laughs> I missed that. Georgia, I woke up one morning and I remember this morning, it was about a year and a half ago when I made that piece. I was... I had had a a woman who was following me and really wanted to be friends with me. And she was somewhat local and I canceled on her at the last minute because I was going through some stuff and she got really upset with me. And I, I, I was, I should probably never have made the plan in the first place because I, I promised to meet her for coffee or something. And um, she was, she's lovely, but she, was very vulnerable with me and told me she was very hurt because she lo- really looked up to me and, and she was super disappointed and cause she was going to be coming into town to meet with me. And I felt horrible that I had let her down because mm-hmm. her email was so heartfelt. And I, I tried to apologize to her and I'm not sure how far that went. I, I tried to be as gracious as I could and try to explain to her that I, that I was under a lot of pressure at that time and I really needed to reschedule and, and, mm. and, and our sort of online relationship, and we had met a couple times in person, our relationship fizzled after that. And I felt, I felt pretty terrible about it, even though I had apologized and stuff. And I woke up one morning and I realized that I was carrying around all of this guilt because this one person was upset with me. And I realized that it was, it was uh, so heavy on my heart and I needed to let it go. And so I literally sat down and wrote out those words and then was like, oh my God, this applies to not just this situation, but so many situations in my both my professional and my personal life. And so I I wrote it down and I and I made and I put it out into the world within a couple of days. 
And um, it went viral, basically. <laughs> and that just goes to show you how many of us struggle with disappointing other people um, when when all we're doing is taking care of our own needs, you know, and we do sometimes disappoint other people, but that's not our responsibility. That's for that person to work out. And what I say also in the, whenever I post that particular piece that you just read is this can all be done with respect and kindness and love. This is not me being, you know, insensitive to people. This is not me being a jerk. This is me saying, I'm taking care of myself. I'm sorry that I, that I can't do this thing for you right now, but, um, you know, I have to let these things go and, it's helped. It's been so helpful to me. And I think it's been helpful to a lot of other people to have that right in front of them to read. It must be quite nice as well, seeing that it resonates because you know that you're not the only one dealing with this. It's almost like boundaries, isn't it? And you feel bad having boundaries that might be different to someone else's boundaries. I think it's helpful actually, especially for people who naturally maybe give too much. Maybe, maybe as you say, maybe you shouldn't have arranged it in the first place because you were too busy or you had too much, you know, going on. And I think actually it's sometimes helpful to remind yourself when you're in those situations, I'm already doing a lot and that's why I feel so guilty. And that's why I've got to this point, right? Because I've actually already given yeah. maybe yes. too much and more than maybe someone else would give. And so actually these aren't, you know, aggressive or crazy truths. They're, they're sensible, you know, and it's, I think it's super powerful. I was going to say, I'm, I've had this really glorious summer where I've sort of taken a little bit of sabbatical from working. And so mm -hmm. I have been able to say yes to so many people. And, you know, I've had this sort of time of relaxation and being able to say yes to things and not disappoint people, but I'm about to enter back into work mode. I've just taken on a several kind of big projects and which I'm really excited about, but I'm, I'm priming myself emotionally for having to start saying no again and for the fallout of that. And it's hard. Um, it is, it often feels like an emotional roller coaster for me because I am super sensitive. I'm a people pleaser. I want people to like me. I don't like disappointing people. And yet we all are in that position. Do you have any tactics that help navigate those conversations? Because I know there's a couple of ones I've read. So one from Adam Grant talks about, instead of saying, I can't do it, I'm too busy, you say, it's not one of my top priorities right now, which is just a yeah. truth. And so you're not lying or you're not, you're not yeah. doing anything. It's just a truth, which is, I think you're important, but it's yeah. just, I've got other priorities. And the other one I've heard is from um, Elizabeth Gilbert talking on Tim Ferriss's podcast, I think it's something like sorry and no, rather than sorry, but no, it's just sorry and no. It's something like that. I can't remember what it is. Do you have any of those kind of strategies or things that you feel you can use to manage those feelings? Yeah. You know, I think it helps me given my personality to, um, to definitely include the sorry that Elizabeth talks about. Um, and I've heard her talk about that before. And also I don't, you know, these are people I might potentially want to work with or, or meet up with at another time. I just am totally busy. So in those cases, I do a lot of, this sounds like an amazing project, or you seem like such a cool person, or sometimes both, but I'm out of band and I'm out of bandwidth at the moment. So I'm not, I can't take on any social commitments outside of my close friends right now. I can't take on any more projects at the moment. And then I can hit send and I can feel like I was a kind person but I still sort of maintain these boundaries. And 90% of the time people write back and say, thank you so much for considering it. I figured you'd be really busy. And every now and again, I don't get a response or 1% of the time I'll get something that's a little passive aggressive, but again, not my problem. That's a person I didn't want to work with or meet with to begin with anyway. Right. And about 30% of the time I don't use that at all. I either, you know, I'll just say, I, you know, sorry, no, or, you know, thank you so much for thinking of me, but I'm not, I'm not interested at this time. Bye. And usually people will either, you know, say, well, but, but if it was, but, but, and then I just don't respond. I don't need people to beg with me a second time. I've said no, you know, and that's it. I'm, this was so hard when I started instituting this kind of filter and I go through a lot of criteria for whether I should say yes or no. What are your criteria? Do I have time? reasonably, do I have time? You know, what's the return on investment? And by that, I don't necessarily mean, does it pay well? That, that's important. Sometimes if I'm doing something pro bono, I want to be able to give back to a cause that I believe in, right? So 
the return on investment is that it is like this feeling good about something in the world. Like, do I feel good about this collaboration, especially when it's work related? Who's the company? Who's the nonprofit? What's the cause? Is this something I want attached to my name? And then I kind of like roll through all of those. And time is usually the biggest factor, sometimes money. Because, you know, when you become a busy illustrator, artist, or designer, people want you, you know, and you have to be really picky and you don't necessarily know how long something's going to take. Do you ever regret becoming so public? And because, you know, you said that um, sometimes it feels quite vulnerable and you're thankful for sort of having a private life that's secure and, and separate from it. Would you ever change it? Yes, I have moments where I definitely want to crawl in a hole. I haven't had any lately, but I definitely have had moments where I want to crawl in a hole and just, it's all too much. I get very overwhelmed. So yes, but it never lasts for very long. I really love my life. And like I said earlier, I do love that I get to interact with so many people around things that seem seem and feel so hopeful and joy filled for a lot of people. I like teaching people like how to run businesses. I like teaching people about art. And those are also things I get to do through my books and classes. Like, and if I didn't have such a big audience, I wouldn't be able to do those things for, you know, a living in the way that I do. So, but yeah, I definitely have moments where I just want to disappear. Um, and it's hard to say whether at some point I just decide that I'm done with public life. And, you know, you hear artists and writers who just kind of begin to retreat. You know, they've made enough money to live off or not, or they're just tired of the grind or the public facing person and, and they just decide to disappear. That hasn't happened for me yet, but who knows? <laughs> we'll see. Right now, I'm already thinking about what is the kind of work I really want to make? And are there some aspects of my career that I'm interested in letting go of? Like, what do I enjoy? Taking the sabbatical this summer has been really helpful because it's allowed me the time to reflect on what I miss. And I, and what I'm realizing is that I do actually need more downtime than I thought I had, that I'm happier when I have more free time, when my schedule isn't as packed. And so what I'm trying to do now is pace my projects. If I have a couple of exciting things coming my way that are going to take up all my time, then what does my break afterwards look like? Or how can I only take on enough projects so that I can have a couple days a week where I'm not working. And so it's already changing for me. I think that um, this was kind of an experiment year of slowing down, partly because I was burned out, but partly because partly I was looking at my future and like, what, what do I want it to look like? And do I want this to change? What about this life and career? And, you know, do I love and like, what, what isn't appealing to me anymore? And I'm, I'm still learning, mm -hmm. but um but I'm getting a clearer and clearer picture of what that looks like, which is exciting. So two kind of quite practical questions that I just think the listeners might find useful because they're quite sort of, how do you first get started doing these two things? And one is um, writing books and publishing books. And then the second one is actually finding clients. So people who, you know, want to commission your work, which I know for you was a very long time ago now, your first one. But I'd love to, if you can remember that sort of first client conversation, and the same with your first book being published, what the process was. Yeah, well, what I recommend for people who are interested in publishing a book is find a topic or something that you're interested in and just make it a daily project. I mean, my first book, which is called Whatever You Are, Be a Good One, it was a book that came out of a personal project that I did, I think in 2012, I hand lettered something every day for a year. And most of what I hand lettered were quotes that were inspiring to me. And a publisher came to me, I had worked with them on some stationery, but no books, some like mm -hmm. paper products in the past. And so they knew who I was. And one of the editors there came to me and she said, I love this project you're doing. At the time, I, I, I kept it on my blog. She was like, this is brilliant. Would you be interested in turning this into a book of like 100 of your favorites from this project? And I was like, hell yes, I would. Um, and that's how I got my first book deal. And then Art Inc., which was the business book I wrote the next year, was basically a publisher came to me and said, we think you're the perfect person to write this book because you figured this stuff out on your own. So you're coming at this from somebody who doesn't have an academic background like um, how, you know, you're going to be able to talk about it in a way that an average person is going to understand. 
first I, I was still in the middle of imposter syndrome at that time. And I was like, who me? No, no, no. You don't want me to write this book. I don't know what I'm doing. And they're like, yes, you do. And so that was, that was interesting. But since then I've made several other books and it's, so in my case, it's like I put the stuff out there and then publishers came to me. But I, but I have to say that I've also put, turned in book proposals for things and um, they weren't necessarily based on a project, but they were based on stuff that I was passionate about and that I had been writing about and making art about. And the way that a lot of artists approach books is writing about research about making art about anything, any topic. We were talking earlier about like, everyone has a story to tell. Well, your story isn't necessarily the story of your life. Your story is like what you're interested in, like what lights you up? What do you find yourself Googling about in the middle of the night when you can't sleep? You know, that's the stuff you want to make a book about. right? That's what I encourage people to follow and then go find the publisher, find the publishers, you know, website and find out how they accept submissions. Do you know anybody who already makes books with this publisher? Email them, ask them if they can connect you, you know, that kind of thing. As far as clients go, my approach in the beginning was to just make a lot of work and put it out there. Again, you know, even though it wasn't perfect, even though I didn't really know what I was doing. And early on, I signed with an agent, which really helped. I have a different agent now. I had a wonderful relationship with an agent called Lilla Rogers. And then by the time we were in our sixth year, I realized that I had most of the work I was getting was coming directly to me and not coming through her because I actually had a bigger name than she did. She said, you know, we had this conversation. I said, I think I need to do this myself because she was taking a commission for things that, that I could have made hundred percent of the money from. And she was still doing a lot of work on my behalf, but she said, you know what? It makes sense for you to go out on your own. Um, and so I did. And then just this past year, I, I signed with another agency because because I realized I actually, after I think five years, six years now of doing things on my own, I actually like having help, um, at least with managing the contractual stuff and the money negotiations. And so a lot of the work that I get still comes directly to me. And I think what's most important for artists right now is build a social media presence, make the work you want to get, put it out into the world. Find companies or publishing houses that you want to work with. Maybe it's a fabric company. Maybe it's a pottery company. Maybe a, a stationary company that licenses with artists. Email them. Let them know who you are. You know, there are so many different ways to get clients. It's, um, it's really about making a lot of work putting, and putting the best of that into the world. And sometimes that's direct communication with potential clients. And sometimes that's just putting it out there and seeing who, who's interested. Um, and, you know, building an audience takes a lot of time. So you have to be really patient. Did you build your audience intentionally or did it, so did you find it happened quite organically? Oh, it definitely happened organically. I never been one to do influencer marketing or things where that I thought would purposefully build my following, partly because I don't want people following me who, who don't derive pleasure from, you know, or hope or joy from what I make. Right. And if people are sort of people, there are people who sort of figure out all of the strategic ways to get a big following by doing giveaways and all kinds of things. I don't do that very often because it's just, there are all different ways to do Instagram. For me, it's been about the slow growth and just continuing to put the stuff that is meaningful and feels like authentic and good to me out into the world and trusting that the right people that want to follow me will find me. What I love about your story and your path is I feel so much of it is actually authenticity and persistence. So just continuing, showing up, you know, putting yourself out there. Why do you think that some people find it so hard to do that? Fear. Fear. Yeah. It's like procrastination and fatigue and boredom are actually often fear just masked, right? We are so afraid of not knowing, like showing up at the, the proverbial art table and 
not having things go the way we sort of envision they should go or not having enough inspiration or not feeling inspired is like, ultimately, it's just being terrified of of the unknown, I think, and the sort of void that exists between who we are and our creative spirit, right? Like there's this kind of this abyss that we have to dive into to like tap into our creativity or to feel excited and get into that flow state. And that terrifies a lot of people. Um, and I do think, you know, a lot of fatigue is real. It's just, you know, people are parents and they're in school full time or they have full time mentoring a, a young artist right now who has a full time job and she's getting up at four thirty in the morning to make art every day because I'm like, if I mentor you, you have to make art every day. You got to show up for this. And she's really finding that it's been helpful for her. You know, I, I, I want to say one more thing. And that is a couple of months ago, it might have even been a few months ago now, at the beginning of the pandemic, I made this piece of art that says something like being creative in times of stress is like running through heat and humidity. It's possible. It's just harder. And I think that right now, I want to say we are in an unprecedented time in history. I'm 52 years old and I can't remember in my lifetime, this many horrible things happening in the world at the same time. And so the weight of that on so many of us emotionally is so hard. And, you know, while that's also connected to fear, I think it's also connected to, to fear of, of the unknown of the future. Like how can we show up and make work when what really matters anyway, or I fear that my life doesn't matter, or I fear I'm going to die, or I fear my mom is going to die, or it's still really about fear, but it's just, it's, we're in such a heavy time and we are so burdened with so much anxiety, not just as individuals, but sort of collectively as a, as a world right now, really. And I think that that is causing a lot of people to, to walk away from creativity. It's also causing a lot of people to enter into creativity. And I think for those people who can garner the, the strength and the perseverance to push through all of that you know, humid air to kind of like, to go on their run, <laughs> um, or to, to be creative, like, it's important, because it can be very healing. Also, you know, that's the the double edged sword is like, on the one hand, it's harder to be creative right now. And yet, the stuff that brings me the most joy, and I think brings others the most joy is like people's creative spirits right now. I saw that you said, it was, I think it was in an interview or something, um, which is the moments you felt lost are actually the times that you learn the most. Mm -hmm. I mean, imagine a lot of people are feeling lost now. Yeah, I've been feeling really lost lately too. I mean, I've gone through some some personal upheaval in the last month and a half and, and trying to sit with my feelings and not push them away. And um I've also sort of been in this period where a lot of the stuff that I was doing to, you know, feed my creative soul, I'm not interested in, and I'm interested in other things. And so I'm allowing myself to just let go of certain parts of my practice for a while, especially if, you know, they're not connected to paid work. Obviously, if I get hired to do a job, I'm going to finish it and turn it in. (laughs) Sorry, sorry, I don't feel like doing this for you right now. We have a contract. (laughs) That's not what I'm talking about. More like, the stuff that used to get me really excited isn't getting me very excited right now. And I'm just like, okay, it'll be exciting to me again. I'm going to do these other things. Some days I don't want to do anything, but most days I can find at least one creative thing that I want to do. And so that's been really healing for me. And I like to say like this too shall pass. And every time I'm in this very difficult period, either professionally or personally where I feel lost Um, I have a tendency to dive into the lostness of it. And from that comes like new things that I become obsessed with, new things that I read, new things that are illuminating to me. And then that always pushes my work in kind of a slightly new direction. And so sometimes I think like those lost periods are sort of essential. Like if everything was always easy, imagine how boring life would be. It doesn't always feel like feeling lost. Sometimes it just feels like anxiety or fear or whatever. But like, I encourage people to just sort of dive into their feelings. There's some art project lying underneath it somewhere. 
I found myself even last night, I was dreaming in my head about a body of work that I wanted to start. I haven't really been able to to get started on it. And then I was like, I'm about to start some some client work next week. And I was like, oh, darn it. I never got around to that idea that I had. And then I thought to myself, oh, my God, I have the rest of my life to do that thing. You know, those client projects will be over. I don't I don't have to do everything right now. And I think reminding ourselves when we're in periods of stress or feeling lost or where we're just not feeling it or we can't do it, it can wait. I want to thank you so much for giving me the time. I really appreciate it. You're a wonderful listener. And um, this is very different than any interview I've ever done. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm so glad we finally got to have this conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you liked it, please do subscribe and please do consider leaving a review.